Well, good evening. We continue tonight with the fourth major discourse of the Gospel of Matthew. Some of you may remember there's five major discourses, that is, speeches that Jesus gives, and one of them that you may have heard of is the Sermon on the Mount. Well, this one's the fourth one, the fourth out of five. Jesus gives this one on his way to Jerusalem. He has announced to his church, he has announced to his disciples, uh, the the seed form of the, the new Israel, the 12, he's announced to them that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And on the way to Jerusalem, where he'd been ministering in a, in a non, non-Jewish region, he's on his way and he gives this, this fourth speech. And what we know, of course, is that even though Christ dies for the sins of the church, as he says on his, on his way to Jerusalem, I must, I must die. He's dying for the sins of his church. Uh, the individual members of the church, nevertheless, despite the fact that Christ has died for their sins, the individual members of the church are still fighting, still fighting by the Holy Spirit to put to death the sin that remains in them. At times, that sin uh, causes people to, to wander. It, it causes people to uh, be at odds with each other within the life of the church. And, and Jesus, thankfully, gives us instructions on what to do when there is this conflict in the church or when there is sin that's present in the church. Now, if you're uh, not someone who identifies as a Christian at this point, you would say you, you, you maybe aren't sure what you believe or you, don't, um, you know you don't believe in Jesus. Um, one thing you might agree with Jesus on is that there's still sin in the church. Jesus has explicitly given instructions to his church about what to do with this problem. He doesn't condone it. He doesn't look the other way. He's, he is in no way interested in saying, oh, well, you know, they're, they're just humans. But nevertheless, he does acknowledge through these verses that we're going to see the reality that sin is still present in the individual members of his church. So uh, just as a, a brief aside to those of you who might not be followers of Christ, um, and if one of the reasons is you, you see a lot of sin in the church, you know, let me say on one hand that, that Jesus in no way condones it. And yet at the same time, he gives us explicit instructions on how to deal with it because he knows that it is there. Well, with these instructions that he gives, he, he's, he's in this passage, which is one of the preeminent passages about what to do with, with sin in the church, he gives instructions about how to respond when sin divides members of the church. So the main point of this passage is to give practical instruction about how the church can live in peace in the presence of Christ. Now you may think that I mean peace from the outside world, peace from people who don't follow Jesus, but that's not actually what this is about. This is about how to live at peace among ourselves within the presence of Christ. That's the focus of this passage. How we, the 10th Presbyterian Church, can live at peace amongst each other, with each other, while living in the presence of Christ. Well, before we get into the passage, I have to acknowledge there's a lack of peace in my house on Friday night. My kitchen sink and I were not happy with each other. For the last month, the faucet at our kitchen sink has been making a very high-pitched noise whenever we run the faucet, so doing the dishes has been especially difficult. And so I ended up taking it apart. And when I tried to put it back together, I broke two other parts of the sink. And then when I finally got those parts back to functional, the sound was gone. And I I thought, hooray, the sound is gone. But a new sound was there. The two new broken pipes 
only received a temporary fix, and I had a different pitch now on the sound whenever I do my dishes or whenever my wife does the dishes. I don't tell you this story to advertise the importance of plumbers, though I have learned that lesson, and I take any referrals after the service. I tell it because it illustrates the way that conflict happens in the church. Something is wrong, right? Something has gone wrong in the life of the church. Someone has sinned, and the process of addressing it actually causes more sin. Maybe you uh, have been sinned against, but you misdiagnose the problem. You think that this person did this or that to you, and you react with anger. You react with frustration. Whatever happens, the next thing you know, the problem has spiraled. The original problem is still there, but now there's a new problem. Perhaps somebody did slander you, but instead of going to them to deal with it, as we're going to see in this passage, you go to somebody else to deal with it. And now instead of actually bringing peace between you and your brother, your family member, you and your your sister in Christ, there's a new sin. You ignored the instruction of Christ and sin has created more sin. Apart from Christ and his word, which is what we see tonight, apart from Christ and his word, sin begets more sin in the life of the church. And the body of Christ, which is called to unity because of one instance of sin, is now splintering with other instances of sin. The family of God, which is the explicit language of this passage tonight, no longer functions like a healthy family and instead is at war with itself. So how do we avoid this reality? Well, first we have to accurately diagnose the problem, which creates division or creates division in the life of the church. And in, in Jesus' words, the, the, the problem is sin. 1815, if you, if you look at it in your bulletin, he says, if your brother sins against you. This is not merely a problem of preferences. No, sin, as our catechism teaches it, is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So sin, the word Jesus uses here, is disobedience to God and his word. Or as the confession says, it's breaking God's law. And almost always, it doesn't only, it doesn't only offend God, but it, it hurts others. See, the problem is when church members try to address sin in the family of God in their own way, like me with my kitchen sink, they create more sin. Eventually, God's name is dishonored and people are hurt and the witness of the church suffers. Sin creates more sin when we fail to follow Jesus' instructions for addressing sin in the family of God. Not only that, the person who sinned, the person who sinned may continue to wander away from the presence of God. Not only are they not at peace with you because they have sinned against you, the passage said, but they're going to be wandering from the presence of God potentially because of this sin. So we have to diagnose the problem accurately. As I said, it's not a mere problem of preferences. It is a problem of offending the holy God. That's what sin is and that's what Jesus calls it here. Jesus uses the word Sin. So what do we do? We must avail ourselves of Christ's wisdom. Christ's wisdom. He has become our wisdom. And we must heed his wisdom if we're going to be a healthy family that enjoys the presence of Christ. And I believe that's what this passage 
is about how we, 10th Presbyterian Church, are going to be a healthy family that enjoys the presence of Christ. A family that's at peace with each other within the family as we enjoy being in the presence of Christ. We must listen to Christ's wisdom that's offered in his word if we're going to stay on the pursuit of that goal. And we'll never achieve it perfectly until he returns. But nevertheless, we must heed his wisdom that's expressed in these verses. Now, I'm going to look not just at these five verses that we had read, but I'm going to bring in a few of the things from last week's passage because I believe the context is especially important for understanding how beautiful this section of Scripture actually is. Well, the last, um, last week's sermon uh, focused on Matthew 17, 24 through, through 18, 14, and we're going to focus on 1 through 14 just briefly. And what I'm going to call that section is the, the vertical response to sin in the church. 1 through 14, the vertical response to sin in the church. And then the section that we actually read tonight, I'm, I'm calling 15 through 17, the, the first half, the horizontal response to sin in the church. So we've got the vertical response first. That's what we focused on last week. Now we've got the horizontal response in 15 through 17, the horizontal response to sin in the church. And then 18 through 20, the final three verses, the theological response to sin in the church. So if you're going to think about three words, vertical, horizontal, and then theological, all in relation to sin in the church. Now, when we see sin in the church through these three categories and we obey Jesus's instructions, we honor him, one, which is our, our primary goal. We honor him. He is our king. Repeatedly, Matthew has stressed that Jesus has come to usher in the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and that he himself is that king. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people who were listening said they were in awe. They had never heard anyone teach this way with authority that Jesus had. Or at the end of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, many of you know this verse All authority in heaven on earth, Jesus says, has been given to him. So whenever we think about peace in the church and that these verses are encouraging us to pursue that and peace in the presence of Christ, the first reason that we do that is because we want to honor Christ. He is giving us tools and instructions for how we as a family can both enjoy his presence but also honor him. Now, I've stressed already that this has to do with the family of God. And when we look at 1 through 14, the family language was explicitly present. 1 through 14, as I said, the vertical response to sin in the church. Well, we, we, we focused on the fact that it is the Son of God who is giving instructions in this, in this exposition, this, this, um, this discourse. But it's also the Father who's giving instruction. The Son gives instruction And he explicitly talks about the importance of actually dealing with sin, cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye, if you are going to enter eternal life. If you don't, you could have two good hands but enter into hell or two good eyes and enter into hell. So the response to sin, the vertical response, that is God's response, Jesus says we must cut off our hand or pluck out our eye if we're going to spend eternity with him. Jesus takes it extremely serious that we stay pursuing holiness. But then in 12 through 14, the vertical response gets fleshed out even further. Jesus himself, the son, has told us that we must pursue holiness. But the father, Jesus says, is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and 99 of them are, are safe. But one of them 
goes astray. And the father, the father goes to find that one and he rejoices when he finds that one. So the vertical response to sin is that we must do everything possible to eradicate it from our lives. But then at the same time, we must know that the father, the father is pursuing those who go astray. The father is pursuing those who go astray. So how does Jesus ensure, how does Jesus ensure that we are going to avail ourselves of his wisdom and cut off our hand or that we are are going to enjoy the fact that the father is going to pursue us? How does Jesus ensure that we cut off our hand, that is metaphorically speaking, Or how does the Father come find us? The the metaphor is that the Father is like a shepherd going out to find the one who is lost. How does the Father come find us? Well, that's 15 through 20, the church. The Father pursues those who have gone astray by his church. These verses about confronting people in 15 through 17, the horizontal response to sin in the church. The the horizontal response to sin in the church, these verses about confronting people are actually focused on restoring a family member to a right relationship with God their father and Christ their brother. When we think about church discipline, and and that's what this is about, it's about church discipline, how a family tries to discipline the members of the family so that the family members continue to grow up to maturity. Every family is trying to figure out how to do that. Individual families are trying to figure out how to discipline their children so that they might grow up to maturity. Well, the family of God is doing the same thing through our, what we call, church discipline. But if we just think about it through this this lens of discipline, we can also think of it in in a sterile way that I don't think actually captures the import of the father out on the hills looking for that one lost sheep. And that's what's actually going on here. The father is looking for his lost sheep. How does he do it? He does it through the church. Now, as we've said, the problem is sin. The problem is sin. Sin against another person, but at the same time, sin against God. And the eventual consequence for perennial unrepentant sin. Let me make that very clear. Perennial unrepentant sin. The consequence is that someone gets removed from the family of God. They don't get to enjoy the presence of the Father and the presence of the Son. And so what is the remedy? As I said, it's the church. That's the the horizontal response to sin. But how does that actually work? How does the Father send his church after his sheep? This is what I am calling the horizontal response to sin in the church. Now, if we fail to heed this advice, as I've said, sin will create more sin. If we just look at these passages and think of them as optional, oh, that's your way of dealing with sin, I have another way of dealing with sin, Um, sin will create more problems. In our passage, the straying sheep, specifically, is someone who's sinned against you. And Jesus says in 15, if someone has sinned against you, what is the instruction? Go tell him his faults. As I've said, how does the father pursue that lost sheep? He sends us. When someone has sinned against you in the family of God, Jesus gives specific instructions. Go tell him his fault. But in case, in case you misdiagnose the situation, keep the conversation between 
you and him alone. Maybe it was a big misunderstanding. Maybe it was unintentional, or, or maybe it was intentional and malicious. Either way, you're only one person. Your interpretation is not objective. So go on your own to that person to try and what win your brother. Now, to win your brother is still emphasizing the family of God language. And that will happen how? If he listens to you, the second half of 15, if he listens to you. But let me emphasize the context. Listening to you in this moment means they are hearing from God. Why? Because you're helping them to repent of sin. He doesn't say, if your brother uh, kind of you know, frustrates you in some sort of subjective way. No, if your brother sins against you, what is sin? Any lack of conformity to the law of God. So what you're doing when you go to them is actually bringing God's word to bear on them. You're helping them hear from God. This is where you need to keep in mind the father out on the hill looking for that last sheep, calling for the sheep, trying to bring it home to the other 99. How does he do that? Well, the the person's going to have to listen. They're going to have to listen to what? The word of God, the voice of the father, bringing the law to bear on that person. Why? So that they might repent. You're bringing God's word to bear on them that they see they have harmed you Yes, this is about you, but they've disobeyed God. And if they stay in perennial, unrepentant sin, if they stay in that place, they will eventually be out of the family of God. So how does he do that? Through how does he, the father, restore those to his family? As I said, through the horizontal response to sin in the church. By brothers and sisters in Christ, the adopted children of God going to each other and helping each other listen to God's word leading to repentance. Now, hopefully you win your brother. And some of us need to do this this week. We need to go to that brother or that sister and we need to remember that they are in the family of God. And we need to remember that the father wants them to not be living in that sin. And we need to remember that. We need to go and we need to try and win our brother both back to good fellowship with us, but ultimately to a trajectory of good fellowship with God. It's better to lose an eye or have your hand cut off than to enter hell. That's the context. And what happens when that person is one, when your brother is recovered? What does verse 13 say? You, you, you probably don't have it open, but it says, God the Father rejoices. And that's what's at stake here. Both the joy of the Father the reconciliation of you and your brother and God the Father's reconciliation to that straying sheep. And when you obey Christ's word and bring God's word to bear on someone in private, respecting their honor, but nevertheless, with clarity and courage, you may be the tool that God the Father uses to bring home one of his sheep. And that won't be easy. But of course, the stakes couldn't be higher. Now, unfortunately, of course, it does not always go the way of verse 15. At times, a person rejects your one-on-one admonition, your one-on-one ministry of the word to them. And so your effort must be strengthened. Now, 
before we talk about that, how Jesus tells us to strengthen our efforts, let me offer some thoughts on the first step, going to a person one-on-one. Most often, if you're like me, the reason we don't go to the person is because we do not like confrontation. Flat out, we'd rather just not deal with the problem. That confrontation is hard, and confrontation in the family of God can be even harder because as Christians, we like to think that there's not going to be sin in the family of God. Of course, Jesus knows that's not true. That's why he gives us these instructions. And so it can be hard to actually go to somebody. There's shame involved. It's challenging. But we must bring God's word to bear. And we must do it how? In a humble fashion. Last week's sermon pointed out that we must be like little children. Humble children who have repented. We have to do the the surgery that Jesus talked about in Matthew 7. You may remember He says in the Sermon on the Mount, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrites! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, not only that, the end of our chapter, the end of 18, explicitly talks about the importance of being willing to continually forgive someone. So, This is hard work, and it's only possible by the Spirit of God. And most of the time, the reason we don't do it is because we just don't want to bother with the the hard, challenging work of confronting someone. And so we have to actually remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. One of the ways that we, as a church family, our goal is to live at peace within ourselves in the presence of Christ. One of the ways that we're going to be called to take up our cross is to be willing to humbly, in a spirit of forgiveness, go to our brother or sister with the word of God. With the word of God and the hope that the Father would use this moment The prayer that the Father would use this moment to restore that straying sheep to the 99. And so if you need incentive to not just brush this off, remember all that is at stake. That person's relationship with the Father and the Father's joy. So that's the first reason we're hesitant. The second reason, though, is that it may not be wise to confront someone in a one-on-one way as the very meeting itself may provoke further sin against God and you. Now, you don't know that for sure, but if that is the case, in that situation, you need to remove yourself from the situation before confronting them. Now, Jesus doesn't spell all of this out. He doesn't say all of this in this passage. But sometimes, wisdom says you need to move out of where you are living before you confront somebody you live with. If that's you, and you're thinking, man, I probably need to move out, but I don't know where to go. You need to let the church know so that we can help you, so that you can deal with this situation both wisely and in obedience to Christ. So other times, that will mean you need to call them on the phone. Other times... That means you will need to leave a note somewhere for a person. Other times, you might need to send them an email. 
The point of all of this is to say that Jesus is not here saying, no matter what, go to the person and deal with it one-on-one, even if they're likely going to sin against you. He is not telling you to go back to an abusive relationship for another round of abuse. He is telling you to protect the person's honor by confronting them discreetly, but not at the expense of your own safety. This is a challenging tension. Let me see if I can make it as clear as possible from our, our church's, what we call, confession. As some of you know, we, we subscribe to a, a confession written in the, in the, the 1640s in England. Um, and it, in meditating on the sixth commandment, which says, Thou shalt not kill, this document um, asks a question about the sixth commandment, and then it gives an answer. It's called the Westminster Larger Catechism. I'm going to try and make explicitly clear that wisdom must surround this first call to go to person one-on-one. And I think that this, this question and answer gives us some wisdom. It says, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? That, that is, thou shalt not kill. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? It says, the duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of life. It explicitly says, preserve the life of ourselves and others by avoiding all occasions. And so if If wisdom calls for you not to go to that person one-on-one out of fear that your life or that you will be harmed, I believe that that wisdom is is pregnant within Jesus' words here because it's the wisdom of Scripture. The Westminster Confession is meditating on Scripture. There's there's verses for each of the little clauses in this little phrase that I read, this little little statement. So when Jesus says go talk to them one-on-one, He also has this wisdom in mind. Avoid all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of life. Like I began with, we don't want to outright disobey or even slightly miss Jesus' intent, which I believe is consistent with the rest of Scripture. And the rest of Scripture says that we should not be reckless in regards to putting ourselves in harm's way. Now with that caveat aside. Now let me continue to verse 16. Verse 16, if your brother does not listen, if your brother does not listen, you have to raise the stakes. And what is the way that you raise the stakes? You bring a few more people. You help them hear from God by bringing others. Now, this will bring more objectivity, perhaps, to your accusation, and it will bring more weight to your appeal. And it also provides evidence in case they refuse. If they refuse to listen to the louder voice now, then there's a third level of response. If they have decided to not heed the advice of you and a few others, the the rebuke, that is, of you and a few others, what do you do? You tell the church. Now, practically, how, how do you do this? It's one thing to say, oh, yeah, we need to do Matthew 18. But it's practically, it's not always clear. Jesus doesn't give us all the details. But in light of the rest of scripture, here's how we as a church obey these words. Once two or three are involved, that is the the second level, 
of the, the horizontal response to sin, the second level, once two or three are involved, then at least one elder is going to be involved. Now, the elders of our church are the people who are assigned to do what, what Acts twenty twenty eight says. The elders are overseers who care for the flock of God, which is obtained with Christ's blood. The overseers are those who care for the flock of God, which was obtained by Christ's blood. So, once you go to that two or three level, if there's, if there's a contentious, contentious issue, I would strongly recommend that you let your elder know what's happening. They can be praying for you, they can give you wisdom, they can give you counsel. So the, the elders are involved, and perhaps an elder's spouse is going to be involved as well in, in certain situations. So whatever the sin is, and the person refuses to repent, they refuse to turn, they refuse to cut off their hand, they refuse to pluck out their eye, They basically act as though they they don't want to be found by the Father. Um, That's when you tell the church. As I said, the elders are involved at this point. And the goal of telling the church, remember, it's to win over your brother. The goal is to put a microphone, the, the, the loudest possible voice, to the Father, calling out for the lost sheep. The context is so important here. The father is looking for one of his lost sheep who's gone astray. These three stages are designed to help the person listen. Yes, to you. But as I said, to you as you minister the word of God. To you as you become the megaphone, that is, for God's word, for the father who's pursuing his lost sheep. The whole church is involved and the voice is as loud as it could possibly be pleading with this sheep to return to the flock, that the Father might rejoice, that we might live at peace with one another in the presence of Christ. That's the reason you tell the church. It's not to shame anyone in any sort of um, malicious way or vindictive way. No. It's that the person might repent. I've seen one of these types of announcements happen before. Maybe you have too. It's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. But if the person refuses to hear that loud voice of the whole church being present for their rebuke, if they refuse, what does verse 17 say? It says, let them to be to you as a tax collector and a sinner. How has Jesus described the person up to this point? As a brother. Verse 15 explicitly says, you have gained your brother, but now... Now, painfully and um, undoubtedly through tears, the, the elders, as, as the ones elected to, to lead the church and oversee the keys of the kingdom, have to de- declare that this person is out of the family of God. They are called a tax collector, which in that time would have represented people who were, were, were stealing from the Jewish people, or as a sinner. Explicitly, That's how this person is to be understood. This is what church discipline language calls excommunication. They are no longer a communing member. They're no longer a member of the family of God. They have acted in a way that reveals they are not little children. They have acted in a way that reveals that they are not who Jesus says we have to be. Humble little children. Remember last week's sermon... What does Jesus love? Humble 
childlike faith. People who turn, that's who Jesus loves. People who turn to him, who turn from their sin. But this person is essentially hiding from the father when they hear his voice out on the hills. Hiding from the shepherd, trying to draw them back to the flock. The informal and formal discipline of the church. The informal, those, those first two stages, but then also the formal, that, that third stage. Those things have not softened their heart. They have not heard the law and thought, I need to repent. And so they don't get to enjoy the benefits of the gospel. They don't get to hear that Jesus is named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. No, they will know him as judge. That's what happens when somebody is removed from the family of God. And then you, or the person in this passage, it says, must treat them like a non-believer. You don't want to give them the false illusion that they are still a part of the family of God. That would be cruel. You must, you must treat them like a non-believer. Like a person outside of the family of God. Why? So that they might repent. So they might know their real standing with God. And so we've seen in 1 through 14, God's response to sin. God the Son telling us to cut off our hand. God the Father saying that he's going to pursue us. And we've seen that God the Father deploys the church for this horizontal response to sin in the church. But now, as we conclude, we see this theological response to sin in the church. Jesus gives these weighty, theological, God-saturated reasons about church, about the reality of the church, for why, why excommunication is necessary at times. When When the sinner fails to repent, they are not only out of the church, but Jesus says that that means they should have no confidence that they will be with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in heaven. Jesus says they should have no confidence. Why? Because verse 18, whatever you bind on earth, that is, whatever you declare about somebody, if the church through the elders officially say, yeah, this person's just not repentant. This person has no faith in Jesus. If you declare that through this formal process, unfortunately, on one hand, unfortunately for them, It means that what is bound here on earth is bound in heaven. It's a weighty thing to make this sort of declaration. And to add even more theological weight to this conclusion, Jesus says in verse 19, says in verse 19, that what the church has agreed on, what the church has agreed on about this unrepentant person, if they agree on it, it will be done for them by my Father. In heaven. And why is that the case? Because Christ, verse 20, is dwelling there in their midst. Christ is dwelling now in our midst. It's why we should want to go find that person who's going astray because where two or three are gathered in the name of Christ, two or three come whenever we say we're going to have a worship service and we're going to, we're going to Read the word and and Christ is going to call out to you and he's going to say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He is with us. We want to live at peace with one another. How? In the presence of God. That's what we're doing even now. 
And so Jesus, in his tender mercy, doesn't leave us to let sin beget more sin, to beget more sin, to create more division, to create more schism. He doesn't leave us. No, he gives us explicit instructions. He tells us how to deal with sin in the church. When we've been offended, so that we might be reconciled horizontally, but ultimately so that the father would find the lost sheep. And so that that person would get restored into full fellowship with the family of God. How? Enjoying the presence of Christ. So this, this age of God's plan of redemption, this, this era that we're in right now, between the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and Christ's return, this moment in God's plan of salvation from the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost until Jesus returns, he is still with us. He promises us where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. It gives weight, theological weight, to the declaration that some people are unrepentant. And therefore, they should think of themselves as outside of the family of God. But it also gives great assurance and promise to those of us who have repented. That we are right now communing with Christ. At peace with one another. Enjoying the fellowship of both the family. The family and our older brother. The family, horizontal, but also our older brother, Christ, the one who in this passage is on his way to Jerusalem, but takes a moment to stop and give us instructions on how to live together until he returns. On his way to Jerusalem, why to die? And so when we think about the reality that there is sin still in the life of the church, hopefully you're, you're motivated, encouraged, challenged uh, to go and bring God's word to bear on one of your brothers, or one of your sisters. Doing it how? One-on-one. To preserve their honor. And if there's a chance that you're wrong, allowing it to be a simple misunderstanding. But if not, bringing to others. Why? To, to make God's voice even louder in their life. The father looking for that lost sheep. And then if they still remain unrepentant, bringing it to the church. Why? So that there would be a megaphone in their life. Not to shame them, but to bring them to a place of right repentance, right understanding of their sin, that they would then enjoy the presence of Christ living at peace with his family. Let's plead for courage to be this type of family, this type of family who looks out for each other, brings each other back, speaking the truth, and yet ministering the word as we do it. Let's be that type of family that we might live at peace with each other, in the presence of Christ until he returns. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, we, we, we do plead for your spirit to, to make us this type of church more so and more so. I'm thankful for the ways it's happening. We pray that you would give us courage to, to, to follow Jesus' wisdom that he lays out for us here in Matthew 18. And we ask this in his name. Amen.